let's start with their motivation. So today I gave a talk at uh, the Spokane Rotary Club, and it was on peacemaking, and so I looked on the Rotary website uh, to see what they had to say about that. And one thing really struck my mind, they said, we will not accept conflict as the norm. And I thought, wow, that is a very strong and courageous statement. To not accept conflict as the norm, to no matter what goes on around us, to always counteract our own tendencies towards anger and hatred and aggression and to do what we can to prevent it, pre- others from engaging in it. So of course we have to start with ourselves and that's already a very uh, big task. We may not beat people up, but there's all sorts of forms of aggression that we have in our own mind. Aggression or vengeance, hatred, spite. So to be attentive to those things and counteract them in our own personal lives. And then as we relate to the society, to others in our country, to similarly abandon that kind of attitude towards others, no matter who they are, and to talk about that and help other people abandon their conflict and aggression. So this is the practice of bodhisattvas. And it's an important practice because we really can't get anywhere without controlling our own anger and vengeance. Because that that very hateful, spiteful mentality is the opposite of love and compassion makes it impossible to develop bodhicitta and also creates all sorts of destructive karma that waylays us in the lower realms. So it's quite important to counteract that, overcome it, and generate its opposites, fortitude, love, compassion, and bodhicitta. And not to accept conflict as the norm. And so with that attitude, let's listen to what Nagarjuna has to say, what he has to tell us about living in society.
was kind of blown away when I saw that on their website. And when you look at their their four uh, um, rules, you know, very beautiful things about always telling the truth. And then there were four uh, statements about ethical conduct of Rotarians, also very wonderful. So um, it was heartening to see a civic organization composed of mostly business people who, at least on their website, had wonderful values. And what I was trying to do was encourage them in the values that they had already committed themselves to. Very nice. Okay, so last week we were uh, talking about relationship to the spiritual mentor. Uh, you know, because that's what uh, Nagarjuna had said after he explained so much other stuff about the path to enlightenment, path to awakening. Then, at the very end of the text, he talks about relating to a spiritual mentor and the importance of um, checking people first before we accept them as our spiritual mentors and then afterwards knowing how to create a constructive way of relying on them so that we benefit from the relationship instead of uh, make a mess. (laughs) Okay, so uh, I I planned on doing, I wanted to go through that some more. I mentioned last week that very often, uh, you know, in our relationships with our spiritual mentors, we just do our same old habitual behavior, the way we act towards everybody, and we don't really, we aren't even aware that it's our habitual behavior, um, except somehow by having heard, at least in teachings, you know, that this is an important relationship, then... Uh, it makes us a little bit more aware of our behavior and what happens when we fall into our old habits. Uh, The idea being that if we are more aware and then more conscientious and can counteract some of those old habits and old attitudes with respect to our, our teachers, who we know are important people and who we have already checked out and we've already decided are are wholesome people, then if we could do that regarding them, it gives us some practice and and some basis for then being able to counteract those same bad habits when we, you know, spew them out all over everybody else around us. Okay, so last week um, we were talking about those bad habits and I gave the example of Uh, asking people, when are you planting the irises? And, uh, you know, how people come back with their habitual attitude and behavior. So uh, I got quite a few responses about, uh, to the question of, when are you planting the irises? You know, it's just a question. When are you planting the irises? Okay, so I thought I'd read you some of the answers. Maybe you can guess who they are. Okay. 
So one person said, didn't somebody else do that yet? (laughs) Okay, then another person. I know you don't trust me. Why don't you just ask somebody else? I'm no good at anything at all. Okay, here's another one. Of course, I'm happy to do it. Is that planting the iris seed or the iris sprout? What is your definition of planting? Can I do a tutorial for the nuns on how to plant irises? Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we should have noticed. What is your definition of planting? Yeah, that was the giveaway, yeah. No, what it also needs is, do you have a source for of, of how for this in a text? Yeah, you have an idea of how to plant irises, but do you have a source in a text for this? I haven't seen that source. <laughs> okay, here's another one. Oh, for God's sake, we spend all this time and effort spraying the damn napweed so that that so that something else can grow. Can't you just be happy with the absence of weeds, the emptiness of weeds? If that doesn't make you satisfied, what will? (laughs) We have some great habits here, don't we? Okay. Don't worry, I've spent the last four weeks in winter retreat reading up and watching videos on how to plant irises, and I've put together a team of volunteers who will do the training online and do everything. Everything's under control. (laughs) Okay, I will do my best. I was planning on it, but did not come to it yet. I will do it soon. Thereafter follows a personal emotional dispute within myself, thinking that I am stupid, feeling very discouraged in my imperfection and such. Oh, (laughs) of course we should have known. I was, pl- I was planning on it, but did not come to it yet. I will do it soon. Thereafter follows a personal emotive, emotional dispute within myself, thinking that I am stupid, feeling very discouraged in my perfection, imperfection and such. So I grew up in GDR, and they didn't teach us <laughs> how to plant irises in GDR. And then my mother, you know, she didn't pay any attention to me. She didn't teach me how to plant irises. And when I was a young pioneer, you know, we did everything else, but we didn't plant irises. So I, I was completely denied a good education as a child. I don't know anything about a planting irises, but you know, I'll I'll do it soon. <laughs> but why are you on my back and making me do it? I'm getting out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, next one. 
I'm waiting for the soil temperature to rise above 65 degrees. Even though it's already above 80 outside, the air temperature is warmer than the soil temperature. It actually gets down to the 40s at night, which is not good for transplanting. So I will do it when the soil temperature rises. Of course, if you think I should ignore these guidelines and do it now, just let me know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the last part is is typical her. She makes a strong case and then she's but if you really want me to do it then that's the righteous time. <laughs> okay. And then next one is Actually, I wasn't planning to do that. Is that my job? I only do vegetables. I'm not sure who's in charge of irises. It's not me. For sure it's not me. An iris is not a vegetable. My alter ego. Your alter ego. (laughs) I like that. An iris is not a vegetable. I only do vegetables. That's not my job. That could have been any of you, actually. Any of you. Next one. Well, I planted half of them. Then I got a bit unsure about whether I'd planted them in the right spot, in the right way. Could you come and check for me? Let me know exactly where you'd like them and give me an explicit point-by-point instruction on the steps from beginning to end on how I meant to do it. No? Oh, I thought for sure that was yours. Then the next one is... (gasps) And the next one is June 3rd at 317. (laughs) Not 316, not 318. 317. Kitties put in June 3rd at 317. Oh, really? When did they get so so prompt? See, it's going in. It's like eating lunch. They know within a minute what time eating. Oh, yeah, okay. I thought they would have said, are there mice out there by the irises? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so um, a good little exercise seeing our, our old our habits, you know? And then, uh, yeah, it's interesting reading them out here and just kind of seeing, you know, how, how does that strike you when you hear somebody else say that or act like that? So then we were on verse 491. One who, due to his own failings, has doubts about a pure, loving, and intelligent teacher who speaks with restraint about what is helpful ruins his chances of attaining his aims. Thinking, and then the opposite, thinking, I am under the care of one who is pure, loving, and wise, and who states with restraint what is helpful. Vow to spiritually discipline yourself, king. No, I didn't finish the explanation of it. I read it, but I didn't finish the explanation. Okay, so you can see those two go together. 
First one is, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, due to their own issues, can't see the good qualities in the in their teacher. And then the second one is somebody who is able to do that, who practices doing that. Okay. So, um, yeah, so relying uh, upon a teacher correctly means following the Dharma instructions that they give and uh, trying to create a good relationship with that person. In other words, not blowing up at them not getting angry, not calling them names, not stomping out, these kinds of things, okay? And so these kind of mentors that you're relating to are pure in the sense that they're not concerned with receiving respect and offerings, okay? So they're people who uh, have a good motivation, who are not uh, out to get something out of you, uh, something along the eight worldly uh, concerns to get that kind of thing out of you. Um, they also restrain themselves through engaging, uh, from engaging in destructive actions with their body, speech, and mind. So they they have some personal discipline. They're not just kind of all over the place, um, breaking precepts, acting in inappropriate ways, and so on. Um, they're loving in that they really care about their students. They're not just using their students uh, to get something or they're not just having students because that's what you're supposed to do or something like that, but they really care for the welfare of their students. Uh, They're intelligent in that, uh, you know, these mentors know what to practice and what to abandon and so can teach that to us and in a way so that we can then know what to practice and what to abandon. Um, They speak appropriately uh, in the sense that they speak about what's helpful. You know, they don't go uh, start ranting and raving about all sorts of other topics or other things that have nothing to do with with the Dharma or with benefiting us. You know, they don't start talking about, well, you know, let's go to the racetrack, and who do you think's going to win the, you know, the race, and uh, this kind of stuff. Okay, so they're, they're people who speak appropriately, and they can give many types of teachings and instructions and explanations. They're not just limited to uh, teaching one practice or one text. Yeah, they can teach us a variety of different things. Um, which is important because we need to learn a variety of, of different things. Okay, um, They're also capable of uh, giving an expanded explanation of something and also giving a concise explanation of it. So they know the principal points of something well enough to be able to summarize, you know, a huge text in, you know, these are the important points that you, you know, to get out of it. And they also know the text well enough to be able to expound and teach all the different points in an expansive way. Okay. Um, and so they, they are able to teach uh, disciples who are earnest. Yeah. Of course, if we're not an earnest disciple, then it's very hard for anybody to teach us, even if the Buddha were here. 
because from our interest, we, you know, if we're not earnest, we don't have any real interest, we don't listen, we don't have any intention to practice, we're just kind of there for the ride. Um, yeah. And so it's very difficult for a teacher to benefit a, a student with that kind of attitude. Okay, so um, disciples whose minds are crowded, uh, clouded, <laughs> and crowded, yeah, clouded, clouded and crowded, yeah. So they don't appreciate the qualities of their spiritual mentors, and they don't appreciate the important role their spiritual mentors play in their life. So th those two things, it's in one sense, but those two points are actually quite important. You know, not appreciating, well, first of all, the, the important role a spiritual mentor plays in our life, like why we need one. Yeah, and why, you know, if we need teachers for even worldly skills, we need teachers for something that's a lot more delicate and intricate, yeah? And if we're somebody who doesn't think we need a teacher and we want to make soup or we can blend our own thing or we already know everything so there's nothing to learn anyway. So again, that person doesn't really understand the, the importance of the role of the spiritual mentor in their own practice. And so if you don't understand that, then you don't take advantage of it. So you miss out on learning a lot and, and usually get quite absorbed in, in your own, insisting on your own views and your own interpretations of things. So it can be quite dangerous. And so somebody who doesn't understand that and who doesn't understand the qualities of their spiritual mentors. So just kind of, you know, well, yeah, there's my teacher, but they, you know, they're just kind of ordinary Joe Blow. Um, I mean, the, the teachers appear as ordinary people because if, if they appeared as really exceptional people, then we would just all just sit there and idolize them and not learn anything from them. But on the other hand, we can look at them as so ordinary as, you know, oh yeah, you know, they brush their teeth, they go to the bathroom, they get lost, they... You know, they stumble over words. Oh, my teacher's getting old and, you know, can't speak clearly. You know, their, their socks are falling down. Their clothes are always dirty. Uh, you know, they just, they make a lot of mistakes when they're teaching. So somebody who, who just has this kind of very critical mind and doesn't, isn't able to see the good qualities of the t their teachers and only find bad qualities, again, they miss out on things. You know, so I've seen with one of my teachers who coughs a lot, it clears his throat a lot. Some people come for teachings and we can't understand him and it drives me crazy that he coughs and they're out of there. Yeah, and they miss a lot because of it. Yeah, or, uh, you know, people come and they're expecting some, you know, far out, exotic, 
lama on a high throne so that we, you know people think that you know like because they you know you read stories of some of the past masters so you expect i'm going to walk in there and there he is sitting on the throne and i'm going to get shivers up and down my spine and goose goosebumps all over my body and now i know that i've found the buddha who's going to guide me to awakening and instead of that happening you know, there's somebody sitting on a cushion drinking water, um, you know, l- looking through their notes or looking through the text or something. And you think, uh, you know, what's this person know? Yeah. I, I want exotic master. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one time... Uh, meeting somebody and um, we were, one of my teachers was teaching and this woman told me afterwards, you know, it was like her first teaching and she said, I came in and I just had shivers up and down, you know, I knew this was it. But then she didn't really follow his instructions, you know, so it's, it's not to have shivers and goosebumps, it's to really discern somebody's qualities and know that they can be a good role model for you and then listen to the teachings. Um, okay, so the whole thing is to, to make, make use of that opportunity uh, to train with a teacher and to um, take the teachings to heart and to discipline our body, speech, and mind so we can really benefit from it. And the, um, you know, the, there's problems. If, if, if we don't check a teacher correctly, there's a problem, you know, enough, there's a problem. And if we, after we form the relationship, if we then get mad at or disillusioned with them, um, there, there can be a problem. So teachers from their side have the responsibility to behave properly, yeah, and to not abuse the trust of the students, um, to behave, to, con- to be sincere, to continue their own studies and their own improvement and not just think, well, you know, now I'm a teacher, so all these people think I'm great, so now I can just kind of relax. Um, no, that's not a proper attitude for a teacher. Um, and But students also, we have to be careful about getting angry at our teachers. Because uh, I remember one place where I went, um, the, there was one person who had, he was one of the early teachers of Dharma teachers in that country. And uh, he was a lay person. And he he taught a lot of people, and many people liked him and thought he was quite good. Um, but then some things happened, and people got kind of disillusioned and and uh, upset with some of his behavior, and there were fractures in the group, people splitting apart in the group. And I remember one person who had been, a, you know, followed this person for a long time, um, said, you know, now I just don't know what to practice because so-and-so taught me these practices, but now seeing what they're like, I don't want to do the practices they taught me. 
you know, because look, look at what they're like and, I, you know, and so that's when it really became very clear to me, you know, kind of the dangers, because the practices this person had taught were fine and it was good that, that the students continue to practice them. But it was hard for them to do that because they just associated the practice with the person. They got to solution with the person and then they wanted to throw up their hands and, and not do anything. And so I said, no, 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 you don't, don't do like that. Those practices are fine. You, you should continue your practice. Yeah. And if you feel that, that that person is no longer a suitable teacher because of their ethical conduct, then, you know, just respectfully create a distance and then look for other teachers who can really teach you how to practice. But don't give up your practice and don't give up your dharma because of the behavior of one person. Okay? But this can be very hard for, for students, you know, and I've seen some people just... Uh, you know, the teacher does something, even if it's not a big thing, they're just like, okay, I'm done, out of there. Yeah? Or some people who are so attached to the personality of their teacher instead of to the teachings that when the, their teacher dies, then they feel totally lost and they stop practicing. And that, that's also a pity, you know, because they were relying too much on the personality and not uh, seeing that the role of the teacher was to teach them uh, how to practice and how to advance, and that their responsibility was to follow the instructions and practice and, and change themselves. Okay. Okay, so it's, um, it's important that we... Um, Kenzo Rinpoche says, disciples should think, I must rely on my spiritual mentors by making offerings, assisting them with their projects and needs, and offering my practice. So those are the three kinds of ways of relying on a spiritual mentor. Making offerings, yeah, so that you can create merit and so that your teacher has enough to eat and they have clothes. Um, yeah, assisting them with their projects and needs because they're working for, uh, they're doing things that are for the benefit of sentient beings and they clearly need help in carrying those things out. And when we help in the projects, we really learn a lot and we have an attitude, we have an opportunity to, to really contribute to things that benefit other sentient beings. Um, and then, of course, to offer our practice by really putting the teachings uh, into practice. And so to, to do that, you know, instead of just kind of taking things for granted. And, you know, sometimes nowadays, because in the America, you know, we have such a com- consumer mentality that it's sometimes, you know, people go to Dharma centers and it's like, you know, I paid my money and, you know, now you're my employee and you're supposed to, to teach me. Yeah, I paid my dues at the Dharma organization and your job is to teach me and, uh, you know, I want to learn this, I want to learn that and this is my schedule, so please make the classes at a time that's convenient for me. Please make the... Um, the location of the classes in a place that's convenient for me. 
You know, we tend to have quite a consumer mentality of, you know, well, you know, we can shop around for different teachers and just find something that's convenient and pleasant. Yeah, instead of uh, really looking uh, for a serious practice and a serious teacher. Okay. And again, the, the responsibility that the spiritual mentors have towards the students in terms of their own practice, their own motivation, and so on. Um, because that's quite a responsibility, you know, if people, sometimes people thinking, oh, it's going to be so much fun, I can be a Dharma teacher, and I like teaching the Dharma, and it's fun teaching the Dharma, and, and it's good, and I sit up in front, and then everybody likes me, and they say nice things about me, and, you know, they give me presents, I, you know, I'm not attached to any of that, but, you know, it's nice that it happens. Um, uh, you know, so very easy to, to think like that, but without really thinking, you know, what's the responsibility if I'm teaching people, you know? Because there's a difference between leading a meditation or just explaining the Dharma to, to somebody, as you would. We have lots of guests here, and people explain things and ask questions and lead meditations. And there's a big difference between doing that kind of thing and then somebody starting to see you as their teacher, where they're, they're really trusting you to guide them. Yeah. Uh, so there's a very big difference between those two things. And I was quite um, alarmed. Some years ago, there was a a conference of Western uh, Buddhist teachers at the Garrison Institute. And it was all about, you know, rec uh, welcoming the next generation of Buddhist teachers. Uh, but there was no discussion at all about what it meant to be a teacher. Like, what, what qualities do you need to cultivate as an individual? What responsibility do you have to the students? What responsibility do you have to the tradition that you're representing? Yeah, there was no discussion about any of that at all. And I thought, wow, you know, this could be a bit dangerous because you have people, you know, they've studied a little bit and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, oh, now I'm a teacher. Um, but they've never really had to think about, well, what does that mean? And are you being an instructor or are you being an actual spiritual mentor? It's like I said, there's a big difference between those two and also in how you present yourself. Yeah, And His Holiness always says, I, I'm just an older uh, brother on the path and I'm just sharing what I know. And, you know, there's His Holiness saying that, and then there's some people who have studied for five, seven, ten years saying, I'm a teacher. Uh, so, it's, you know, it's quite a, uh, quite a difference there. And so my, my take on the whole thing is that actually we all are all Dharma students until we attain awakening. Yeah? Until we attain full awakening, all the defilement's gone, we are disciples. Okay. Once in a while it happens that we get put in the role of teaching. But that's only a role that we're in temporarily for a certain period of time and in relationship to a certain group of people. 
Yeah. So going around saying, I'm a Buddhist teacher, you know, it, it should be, I'm a Buddhist disciple. And, you know, then people say, well, once, don't you teach? Well, once in a while I'm in that role. So it's only a role. I am not a teacher. Yeah, I play that role with respect to some people from time to time. And so I think that's a much better attitude to have rather than thinking that we're, we're somebody important and uh, then we need to compete with all the other teachers according to who gets the most d- disciples coming to their teachings and, you know, because everybody wants to control, you know, how many people came to yours, how many people came to yours. And, and you know, and just to realize that, that uh, you know, our, our task is just to be a benefit, that's it. Without creating an identity. Yeah, because we can create an identity. I'm a teacher, therefore I go here, I go there. They should treat me like this, they should treat me like that. You know? And, and as soon as you have that, of it's hell, because nobody treats you the way you think you should be treated. You know, especially if you're a little bit too inflated. Yeah. So then, then you know, these people are so disrespectful. They don't know who I am. Well, I don't know who I am either. <laughs> yeah, except maybe a, an arrogant jerk. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, t- 492. Know in brief the qualifications of spiritual friends. You should receive teachings from those who are content, compassionate, and ethical, and possess the wisdom that dispels negative mental states. Having understood what they teach, you should respectfully put it into practice. Through this excellent system, you will attain supreme achievement. Okay? So here... um, in 492, Nagarjuna is talking about the qualities uh, to look for or the qualifications of a spiritual mentor. So this is just a very brief um, description. So first of all, somebody who is content. Yeah? So somebody, yeah, who's content. What I have is good enough. Who I am is good enough. Um, they're not looking for veneration, they're not looking for offerings, they're not looking for status, they're not looking for your praise so that they can feel good about themselves. They're somebody who's, who's centered and content. Yeah. And we need somebody like us, that is an example for us, don't we? Because we're so discontent. Yeah, I want more of this, and I want praise, and I want veneration, and I want possessions, and I, you know, I don't like myself, and I want other people to, you know, boost me up so that I feel good of myself, and all that kind of nonsense. So, uh, you know, if there's a teacher who 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 is like that, who isn't very mature in their practice, it's gonna get to be kind of a sticky situation because they're not content. And so they're asking you to fill up the hole inside of them, whether it's a a lack of material things or a lack of their own confidence or whatever it is. 
Okay, so teachers should try and, you know, be content, at least try, you know, um, and have, uh, you know, be free of desire uh, to receive venerations and offerings. It reminds me of Geshe Zopa. Um, you know, he was always so humble, and we would, uh, every year at the end of the teachings, we would do a big, huge, long-life puja for Geshe-la. And he, you know, he the teachers give some kind of talk in the middle of it. And he said, oh, you're treating me like I'm very important, but I'm just a dog wearing a lion's skin. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. Yeah. He didn't say, yes, you know, I'm the great master, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I mean, guess it was always extremely, extremely humble. Yeah, and many people clearly did not even recognize his qualities. Yeah, walked right past him. But if you noticed his qualities, you were really impressed, right? Yeah, he was exceptional. He was really exceptional. Okay, um, the teacher, so that was the first quiet content. They should be compassionate. So again, somebody with a kind motivation towards their their disciples. They really care about them. They want their disciples to do well. You know, they even want their disciples to be better than them. Uh, and so they're not seeking fame and respect and offerings and stuff like that. But their whole motivation for doing what they're doing is is one of compassion and care. Okay, um, so content, compassionate, ethical. Yeah, ethical is really important. Yeah, we tend to, you know, in our culture nowadays, ethics, that's just Sunday school morality. Throw it out the window. You know, everything's relative. Everything goes. If you feel good, do it. If nobody, get, if you don't get caught, it's okay. Um, I mean, you know how it is, the kind of attitude people have. And the examples we have in, in, of societal leaders certainly are not people who inspire us to be ethical. Yeah? So uh, we certainly need to choose spiritual mentors who are ethical and who act as a good example for us. And even though ethics is the foundation of the practice is the first thing, you know, it's the first of the three higher trainings. It's the sixth of the, the second of the ten perfections, you know. Ethical conduct isn't the highest, this and that and that. But everything is based on it. Yeah, everything's based on that. And, um, you know, eth- ethical conduct is the root of trusting somebody. So, if a teacher doesn't act with some degree of ethical conduct, then it makes it difficult for the intelligent students to trust them. But it's very interesting. Things happen that really puzzle me. When I, I lived in Seattle many years ago, there was, there was one person who, um, she sometimes came to the classes that I was doing, and sometimes she went to another center. And one day she said to me, 
I really appreciate your ethical conduct. That, that makes me feel very secure. Um, you know, the other teacher that I go to, we found him passed out drunk on the sidewalk the other week. You know, but she still kept going to the classes. Yeah? And I was so surprised, you know, um, you know what, that, that still she kept going. Clearly she saw something that she thought she could learn. But, you know, for me, if somebody was passed out drunk on the sidewalk, I would, I know for me that's, that is not the kind of example I need of uh, the direction I want to go to <laughs> and the kind of person I want to become. You know, maybe for some people it works, you know, but I just know for me that kind of example would not work. Yeah. But it, it was interesting that, you know, I had, I really appreciate you keeping up them. They, keep, they do this, but, you know, I'm going. Okay. Um, okay, so content, compassionate, ethical, and possess the wisdom that dispels negative mental states. Okay, so there, um, a good teacher is wise regarding the methods to eliminate the disciples' afflictions. Okay, and they're skilled in explaining what to practice and 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 abandon. So it's uh, you know you want a spiritual mentor that has, um, you know some some wisdom about how to help you overcome your afflictions, who first has the compassion that wants to help us overcome our afflictions, and second of all, has the wisdom knowing how to do it. So that could mean, uh, in terms of the Dharma, what wisdom, what uh, meditations, you know, you apply to what kind of afflictions. And so, you know, if we come in and we say, I have a problem with anger, if I have a problem with jealousy, then they'll tell us the right meditation to do. Yeah. And then also on a more personal level, somebody who knows kind of uh, when to nudge us and when to, to pat us on the back and, uh, you know, somebody who's, who's skillful in communicating to us how we need to change. That doesn't mean we always understand clearly what the teacher is doing. Yeah, because sometimes our own afflictions and preconceptions are so strong that, you know, we make up all sorts of reasons why we think they're doing what they're doing when actually they're trying to benefit us. Okay? So, you know, somebody who's skilled in that way and also someone who's skilled in explaining what to practice and what to abandon. So, you know, what, what do we practice as a beginner? What do we practice after that? You know, how do we put a daily practice together? We learn so many meditations and so many teachings. What are we supposed to practice? Yeah, and that gets very confusing because there's so much and then we keep learning more and more, you know, but we don't have time to study it and then we just get confused because what do I practice? There's so many things I can't study them all, I can't understand them all, you know. And we've heard about the Lama and we know where we need to stop, start, but somehow we're not thinking 
that the teachings we receive in a group are personal instructions. We think that the teachings we receive in a group are just kind of, you know, they're just something the teacher is saying, but if we need to go to them and ask specifically what do we practice, as if what they're teaching to the group is different from what we need to practice. Okay? Yeah. And, and also, we're only going to practice it if they tell us personally to practice it. If they tell us in a group, you know, you really should, uh, you know, make sure you do refuge and bodhicitta and seven limbs and some purification every day and also do some lamrim every day. Oh, well, they said that to the whole group. That doesn't apply to me. Yeah. And then we go and we say, oh, what should I practice? Yeah. Like, teach me something special that's different from what you taught everybody else. You know, and then then maybe I'll consider practicing that. Yeah. So that, uh, from our view, that that's an incorrect understanding. What we learn, you know, in the Dharma class is what we're supposed to practice. When we get confused and we don't know how to practice it properly, or we're practicing it and we're getting funny kind of results, then we go and we say, okay, I've been doing this and and this hasn't been working or I'm really stuck in this thing, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, if you've heard a lot of teachings and then you're going, you know, we were talking the other day about going up and down and up and down and you're in a down time and before even thinking for yourself about what do I need to practice, you know, what's the affliction in my mind and how do I counteract that affliction, we instantly go running to our teacher, tell me what to practice. Yeah, that, that's showing that we don't take the teaching seriously. Yeah, that we think that what we're learning publicly is, is just la, 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 la. And when we have a problem, we need to go and ask for individual instruction only for me that's different from everybody else. Yeah, as if nobody has jealousy, nobody has low self-esteem, nobody has anger and confusion. You know, that what the teacher's teaching is, is has nothing to do with practice. Okay, you getting what I'm saying? Yeah? So actually, you know, and it doesn't matter how many people are there. You know, when you... At least for me, when I go to His Holiness's teachings, there are thousands upon thousands of people there. But, you know, I listen like these teachings are directed towards me. Yeah. And this is what I'm supposed to learn and what I'm supposed to practice. And of course, I can't practice everything at once, but I can, for the things that I can't practice in depth now, at least I can plant some seeds and then do the things that are more at the stage where I'm at now and do those, you know, more in depth and, and really work on those instead of, well, I've, I've heard teachings on initial scope, on middle scope, advanced scope, I've had Kriya Tantra and Yoga Tantra and highest class Tantra and I have all these kinds of things. Now what do I practice? Well, what did Jay Rinpoche say at the beginning of Long Ren? Yeah? 
Why, do, why is the path set up that way? Yeah? Did he say, walk in and immediately practice highest class tantra and don't do anything else? That's not the beginning of the Lam Ram. Yeah? So, you know, it's explained in the teachings where you put most of your emphasis and then how you do other things quicker to plant seeds and gain some familiarity with them, even though they're not going to be your main practice because you're not really at the stage where doing that as your main practice is what you need and what's going to benefit you. Okay? So it's important to to listen to the teachings. And then if we have questions beside those, you know, after we've listened and we've thought about things and we've tried to do something, then if we have questions, you know, go ask. And if we go to our teacher and go, oh, I'm so confused, I'm so angry, you know, I don't know what to do, I'm so angry, and then we tell them the long, the long story. So-and-so did this, and then this happened on Monday, that happened Tuesday, that happened Wednesday, and Thursday and Friday, and, you know, they all did this, and I'm so angry, and, you know, I'm just so... What's your teacher supposed to do, say to you? If you go on like that for who knows how long, complaining about all the other disciples... What are they supposed to say to you? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Then. (laughs) Yeah? I mean, maybe they'll say, have you looked at uh, chapter 6 of Shantideva? Have you looked at His Holiness book on healing anger? Have you looked at my book uh, on working with anger? Yeah? You've heard teachings about working with anger? Have you ever practiced them? Do you remember what they are? Do you understand that when you're angry, you're supposed to follow those teachings that are, are on fortitude that help you work with anger? Did you hear that during teachings? Yeah? <laughs> so you see, we have some responsibility as a student. To, to not just act as an infant and, you know, oh, I have a problem, what do I do? <laughs> you know, because I know for myself, every time I ask, whenever I would get in that state, there was no way I could get an appointment with my teacher. Absolutely not. The times when I felt it was most desperate that I definitely needed to talk to my teacher because I just couldn't figure out how to put things together and what he wanted me to do and this and that. I could never get an appointment. Very interesting. Yeah. So I I helped the uh, Kleenex company stock go up during that time. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I can never, I can never appointment. I am so sincere. I'm in crisis. And there's the person who makes the appointment. Well, let me. <laughs> and now I see it's like my teacher's going. Well, you know, were you listening during teachings? If you listen during teachings, you know, if you thought about. Some of what you heard, you might be able to figure out what to do yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah. Another thing I've noticed is, um, you know, we talk a lot about death, how to help people who are dying, what to do when people die. And yet, when people hear these teachings, it's great. Somebody in their family is sick and dying. Immediately, they call, what do I do? Yeah? As if what they heard in the teachings is not what they're supposed to do. They need some personal instruction about what to do. Yeah. Or maybe they just forgot. You know, you listen to teachings and you think, oh, nobody I know is ever going to die. Yeah, because that's what we think, you know? It's not going to happen to me. And, yeah. and then, you know, somebody said, what do I do? What do I do? So, you know, this is our responsibility as students to really listen to the teachings and review them and think about them and try and put them into practice in our daily life. And of course we can go when we have questions, of course. But first we need to think about things, yeah, and see what we can sort out on our own and learn to be a doctor to our own mind. Because sometime we're going to die and it's not like it's, it's always going to be so convenient, you know. I'm dying and so I'm going to call India and say, Your Holiness, what do I practice now? You know, when he's in the middle of teaching 10,000 people or doing who knows what. Yeah, so we have to, we have to learn how to guide our own mind. And, you know, when you're dying, yes, call your teacher, let them know. Yeah. I've seen my own teachers do that when they're sick. You know, they call his holiness. He knows what's happening. But, um, you know, there are also people who have practiced for their lifetime, so they know a little bit about what to do and how to guide their mind. Okay. So those who teachers, people we should look for as teachers are content compassionate and ethical, and possess the wisdom that dispels negative mental states. Okay, so having understood what they teach, so having understood what they teach, in other words, we've reviewed it, we've thought about it, we try to remember it, then you should respectfully put it into practice. Through this excellent system, you will attain supreme achievement. So if we do that, you know, if we go to teachings and study it and put it into practice and have a good relationship with our teacher, one of, of openness and trust and honesty and so on, um, then we'll progress along the path and eventually we'll attain Buddhahood. Okay, now questions. <laughs> um, someone online wanted to ask to clarify when we get carried away and confused about what to practice after hearing so many different teachings, mm -hmm. do we just go back to the beginning of the Lamrim and start over with what we haven't realized yet? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, 
there's the way they explained in the in the Lamram how to set up a daily practice, and also you know in my book guided meditations on the stages of the path. So you do some kind of general practice. It can be the meditation on the Buddha. It can be Chenrezig, Lama Tsongkhapa, Guru Yoga. It doesn't matter which one. But they all start with refuge in Bodhicitta, four immeasurables, seven limbs, mandala offering, request. That's something with that kind of format. And then to do some Lam Rim meditation. Yeah. And with the Lam Rim, uh, cycle through it but also put a little bit more emphasis on the beginning ones because they're going to be the ones that are easier for you to understand. But also realize that the way the Lamrim is set up now is for people who are already Buddhists. So you come to precious human life and they're telling you to feel glad that you weren't born in the health and you, as a Westerner, you read it and you say, what am I supposed to do with this? You know? And so, okay, then what do you need to understand before you do the meditation on precious human life? You need to spend some time uh, understanding what the mind is, what the brain is. Yeah? It's good to learn something about the division of phenomena so you know permanent and impermanent among the impermanent things you have functioning things you have i mean you have form you have consciousness you have um, abstract composites so what is my brain what is my mind how do the two things work together yeah uh what are the logical arguments that prove rebirth because you know if you, there are ways to really help you understand rebirth it isn't something that you have to have blind belief in but you think of the the logical arguments that talk about rebirth think about the examples that you've heard of people who have remembered past things you know uh think about these kinds of things yeah because uh before the meditation on precious human life is going to make sense to you you have to have at least some feeling about rebirth yeah, or either that, or when you do the meditation on precious human life, you just kind of you don't put so much emphasis on that. Of you know, uh, I'm glad I'm not a hell being or a preta. At least you can think I'm glad I'm I'm born in a place where I have enough food and clothing and I have the requisites and I'm not in an extreme state of suffering. You can think like that. Yeah, but but you do that and you know. And you get familiar with all the different meditations. Yeah. And then you, you learn by uh, trying the different meditations out. When you're in certain moods, when you have different afflictions, what meditation you need to do in order to help your own mind. Okay. So when your mind is running wild with attachment... Yeah, then you need to make your mind more sober. So you need to think about the disadvantages of, of cyclic existence. You need to think about impermanence. You need to think about death. You need to think about the, the disadvantages of, of attachment. When your mind's, you know, overrun with anger, 
Yeah, that's not the time to meditate on death and make your mind sober. It's the time to meditate on love and compassion and, and fortitude and things like that. So, you know, you, you do the different meditations and you see the effect they have on your mind and then you know, okay, if I'm feeling this and my mind is out of whack with this, I need to do that to bring my mind into a more balanced state. Yeah, so you learn how to be a doctor to your own mind, you know. And you also learn, you know, when do I need to do something that's really an analytic meditation and when do I need to do something that uh, depends more on visualization, yeah. When I'm suffering from low self-esteem, I need to do some of the things to, you know, overcome low self-esteem. Like how I, how I was telling you about the syllogisms, you know, and all the arguments that we make to prove how stupid we are. We need to sit down and think about those and, you know, really think about those and show ourselves how stupid what we're thinking is, you know. And then... You know, it's after you do that, then it's very helpful. Visualize the Buddha or Chenrezig or Tara or whoever, and light coming into you and purifying and filling you up with light, and you feel very a very close connection with the Buddha. And then, you know, your feeling of, of self-loathing is gone because you've realized on one level it's ridiculous, and on another level using sim- symbolism you've purified. So, so you learn what to to do what you're, you need to do to help your mind at any particular time. Okay? So it's not just listening to teachings and then going back and memorizing, you know, there's five points to this and the first point has, you know, first of the five has three subdivisions. And, you know, it's not just memorizing that stuff. It's like thinking, what does this mean to me? And when I think about it, what does it, feeling does it, you know, what mental state does it bring in me? And then what mental state is, is this counteracting? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when we suffer from a lot of doubt, you know, who's Buddha? What's Dharma? What's Sangha? You know, then you need to contemplate the qualities of the three jewels. Or if your mind is going, well, is it really possible to become a Buddha? Then you need to con- contemplate Buddha nature. Okay, so, yeah, we need to figure this out. And when you're confused, it never hurts to start at the beginning. Yeah, when you're confused, going to the most difficult meditation, the one you understand the least, is not what you need to do when you're confused. Okay? Yeah, you need to get grounded. So what's going to ground you? Okay. Other questions? Um, I was fascinated to learn that after Ling Rinpoche had died, that um, His Holiness asked that his remains be preserved and mummified. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was this American sculptor who was a student of Ling Rinpoche's who sculpted this likeness of him to cover the mummified body. And then His Holiness consecrated the body and keeps this statue in his private temple in Dharamsala. So 
I had never heard about anything like this before, and I've been sort of keeping this on the back burner until a moment like this. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm wondering, I you know, have you heard of any other revered teacher um, being honored in this way? Well, I remember when I was in China at one one of the temples I was at, there was the body of uh, a previous, you know, many centuries ago, a great master that they had mummified and had, uh, I don't know, put something over to protect the body. So I think, yeah, from time to time, this kind of thing happens. With who? Oh, yeah, they did do that with Che Rinpoche because later during the Cultural Revolution, when they broke it open, his fingernails were still growing. Yeah. So how does a practitioner relate to this kind of... I mean, are, you mean I would to assume that... Is it like, it's like being in the presence of a stupa, for example, or just receiving blessings from... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you relate to it as, as a holy object. Yeah. And, you know, when you go there, I mean, you... Because I was there at the time she was doing that, Rinpoche, Ling Rinpoche was my preceptor. And so, uh, while he was alive, when he still lived up at his house up the hill, from time to time I would go and visit him. Yeah, and then after uh, he died, then uh, they dried the body out, and then Lisa came, and she was, uh, after the body was dried, then she was sculpting around it, and so I'd go and visit her from time to time, and then after she finished, they kept the body there, um, you know, uh, in full form for some period of time. It was a while. Yeah, because I used to, I remember going from time to time to pay my respect. And uh, and then at one point, I wasn't in Dharamsala at that time, then they brought it down the hill, his body in a big procession, and it stayed in His Holiness's palace. Yeah, but at the beginning, they, they kept it there. We could all go and pay respect and sit and meditate. Yeah. Yeah, and you, it makes you remember your teacher. Yeah, and especially when his, his body was in the same room where you had gone before and you had talked to him and asked him questions. And, you know, then that, that feeling is, is still there. You recall all of that. It, it helps you. They uh, just published uh, the biography, His Holiness's biography of Ling Rinpoche. It's just coming out now. Yeah. Talk a little bit just culturally, seems cultural to me, how, uh, I can, I'll just say it more specifically, I was surprised maybe a little bit when Dasha Rinpoche died that, and then I watched a video about the wife of uh, Dougal Kensei Rinpoche. I didn't realize there was so much, what I thought was cultural kind of, Procedures. Oh yeah. <laughs> that. Oh yeah. I mean, it's huge. Yeah, huge. When a, a a great lama dies, it is things go on day and night for weeks and weeks and months, and 
Yeah, it's a very, very big thing. Yeah. How you treat the body, how you cremate the body, what you do with the ashes, how you open it up. There's all, all sorts of stuff. And um, yeah, it, it can be quite a big thing that, that lasts for a long time. Yeah, that's okay. If, if you don't resonate with it, you know, um, it, it's hard to, to say, you know, of those things they do, what is actually to benefit the Lama and what is to benefit the disciples. Yeah, and so uh, many times rituals give people a way to channel their faith, to channel their grief, to be together in community or whatever. But there's also, it's a very cultural thing. It's a super cultural thing. And, uh, and if that doesn't resonate with you, that's fine. The bit, you can, you know, stay at home and meditate on what your teacher taught you. Yeah, because that's the main thing. That's the main thing, is the dharma and the dharma connections. Yeah, and then all this stuff, you know, that goes on and everything. It's, it's a way for people to create merit by making offerings. It's a community event so that people who, who are disciples of the same teacher can come together and grieve. Um, yeah. But all the pujas and the this and the that and how you tie this and how you move that. And, you know, if that isn't something that inspires you, it's fine. Just do what you need to do. Yeah? A quick comment. Um, because I was a witness to Geshe Sopa's passing, well, not, not in the room or anything, but I remember when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I was, I, I was very fortunate to witness this firsthand. This, mm-hmm. there were a lot of the rituals and things. They were actually quite um, open um, with some of the things mm-hmm. to even just the, the um, you know, not serious um, students, but to people who are just associated with Deer Park and with Geshe Sopa and whatever. And um, yeah, I, I sense that very much was a way to bring everyone together to give us something to do. Because a lot of people were yes. just like, uh, didn't, didn't know which way to turn, yeah. now what happens, what's going on. But again, you can say, all right, well, go take this lopper thing. And we went out and you cut the sticks and you made, you know, there was the, all of these it seemed very ritualistic. Yeah. And, you know, we were preparing for the, the, you know, ceremony, but it gave you something to do. Yeah, it does. It gives you something to do. <laughs> it gives you something to offer, you know, because you're doing this whole fire puja. Yeah, it's a big fire puja, but it's of somebody's body. Yeah. And that really was quite amazing to see. Yeah. It, it actually, it was a great teaching um, I because rec- I've been doing the guru puja. I mean, again, I don't know anything. I didn't. I don't understand what they really were doing, but I recognized a lot of the symbology and a lot of the things that went on in the guru puja were, at least for my mind, I'm like, oh, again, it, it just really it was a wonderful teaching. I really, really was very fortunate yeah. to be able to, to yeah. see that. So. And then different groups too. Some teachers will explain to you what's going on in the puja and 
some sometimes that they're just the Tibetans are so busy doing their puja they you know they they don't explain a lot but maybe just a little yeah Yeah, but it, it it brings people together and it makes you, gives you a time to reflect on um, the effect that person had in your life and how you want to keep that effect going. 